So what are we going to do? There's a philosophy that was developed by the long-suffering French, uh, probably around World War I, World War II, I think. And the idea was this thing called the ghost in the machine. I just wonder, has anyone ever heard of the concept, the ghost in the machine? Hmm. If anyone here was a PhD in philosophy, there would have been a hand up. The ghost in the machine is the idea that our brain is a machine. Our heart is a machine, our lungs are machines, our kidneys are machines, and they're all amazing machines in our body. But most people don't look at the brain as the same type of machine like the liver or the lungs or the heart. Because the brain, unlike those other things, produces ideas. It also regulates sleep, appetite, digestion, an infinite list. But that machine, that gray matter between our ears, it produces ideas. It sends those ideas to what? To who? And this is kind of what I believe does exist, something called autonomy. It's the, it's the idea of one's identity, which is not a qualifiable entity, but it just is. And so let's look at autonomy. Autonomy is probably the individual tastes, morals, values. It's our uniqueness. It's our ability to look at something in a way that perhaps no one else looks at it that way. And so my autonomy is not one that I judge. I just appreciate that I can say, you're talking during my presentation is a problem for me. It's distracting. I, I find it disrespectful. And what I'm conveying in that assertion is my experience that's unique to me and perhaps other people. But the machine, the brain, it produces ideas and it sends those ideas to my conscious awareness. The brain processes thousands of pieces of information every second. I know or I believe that we're not having an earthquake at this very moment because the sensories are not sending me that signal. I'm not aware right now of how fast my heart is beating, but I suspect if it were beating and thumping, if I were more anxious than I currently am, my brain would say, your heart's beating. Huh, I wonder if there's a problem there. Take a look at that. Or maybe your heart's beating because you're anxious, and geez, I hope no one notices that I'm anxious. The brain sends a tremendous amount of information to me, to my awareness. Unfortunately, the brain, it sends biased information. The brain's messages are often created by old tapes and old lessons. So what do I do with the brain's information? The brain tends to be equally creative and equally critical. So I don't really 
scorn that my brain exists or sends me this information, but I try to be very, very careful of paying attention to what it says to me. Because if I agree with some of its messages um, that are uh, self-incriminating, then that can create a very painful emotional experience. It can create depression. The brain, the machine, focuses on the big picture. It judges others in an overgeneralized way, just as I would judge myself if I had self-esteem in an overgeneralized way. It tends not to say things like, I like certain qualities within my friend Jane. It tends to say, Jane's a great gal. It tends to look at Jane globally as if it can judge and qualify Jane's, Jane's entire essence and being. Jane's a great gal. Mother Teresa is a wonderful woman. We're looking at some of the choices that people might make and our brain generalizes it. It looks at the big picture. The brain judges ourself with the same type of overgeneralized thinking as I've mentioned. I uh, had a, what I consider beautiful vest, and in the place of employment about seven years ago, I was walking out this door that had one of these New York style security locks, kind of jutted out a little bit. And I, got, I walked too close to the security lock and I ripped my favorite vest. So I brought it to the dry cleaner and they repaired it. The next time I wore the vest, I walked past the same door and it ripped in the exact same way. And I brought it to the same dry cleaner and he thought his workmanship was defective and he repaired it again for free despite my protest that no, I did the exact same thing twice. Believe it or not, the next time I wore my vest, I walked through the door and I ripped it again in the same way. And my brain said to me, you clumsy idiot. Thank goodness at that time, I didn't believe the clumsy idiot actually existed, but my brain didn't care that I had made a different choice about that philosophy. The brain operates on reflex. It operates on impulse. And the brain saw this behavior and my brain decided to remind me that clumsy idiots could do something like that. So what do we do with our brain that sends us these false pieces of information perhaps or sends us information that's biased, that's possibly self-destructive? What do we do with, with our brain between our ears, this separate entity from me. That's such a difficult thing for people to pick up. They say, if I'm not my brain, who am I? But our brain does send this idea separate from us. It's kind of like if we're in a theater where we see an actor, like I always think of the same person in the movie, what about Bob? Um, 
Not, not Bill Murray, but the other guy, Dreyfus. So we're watching What About Bob? And I see Richard Dreyfus, a very familiar face. And I just can't get his name, although I've been getting better at it. And an hour later, I'm sipping cappuccino at yet another Starbucks. And I'm talking about sailing, what else? And my brain pops that information right into my conscious awareness. My brain did that, not me. I wasn't looking for the name. I gave that up an hour ago. The brain does process information. It does send us ideas. It is separate from us. I wasn't willfully looking for that information. And when I ripped my vest for the third time, I didn't think it was fair that my brain would condemn me as being a clumsy jerk. So I talked back to my brain because I'm not willing to allow that idea to be the final word. And I said, hey, I just ripped my vest for the third time in three weeks. I wonder what it will take for me not to do that again. And I imagine that humans, you see, humans are capable of clumsiness, even the same clumsiness, three times in a row. I probably didn't break a record here. So when my brain sends me signals about being anything other than human, which, believe it or not, in about 15 years now of practicing this philosophy, it doesn't do it so much anymore. I don't know why I never expected that outcome. But it doesn't. Periodically it will, and I just laugh at it. Periodically I'll do something really stupid, and my brain will say, jerk, and I just laugh. Because it's a meaningless label at this point in my life. Aspect of what it's really saying, you know? I heard about this guy named Bob recently, and I heard that Bob... Bob adopted three underprivileged children from South America. Bob's a great guy. My mind tells me that Bob's a great guy, and we can all agree anyone who would adopt three underprivileged kids from South America, he's got to be a great guy. Don't worry that Bob happens to be an investment banker and participates in leveraged buyouts that put numbers of people on the street who are unemployed. Bob's a great guy. Or maybe we can just say that Bob is a human being who has diversity in his life. He has a thing for underprivileged children and giving them a better life. And he's a ruthless competitor in his business world and he makes lots of money and I'm happy for him. Now for some really horrible stuff. Keeps getting worse. Existentialism and relativism. Once again, the French created existentialism, as far as I know. And out of the existential ideas that came out of World War I and World War II was a whole practice of psychology called phenomenological psychology. The idea that, or the possibility that, nothing actually exists outside of its unique circumstance or the observer's biased perception of it. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think this guy who keeps coming in here, I don't like that he does that. It's distracting to me. But that's just my take on it. I'm sure he has a good reason. I'm sure he feels justified. His worldview of entering this room is very different than my worldview of that he does it. So I won't say it's wrong for him to do that. I'll try not to ask him to do it again. See how successful I am in that? But existentialism and relativism is the idea that we can't own truth because nothing exists outside of the way we see it. And I don't think that I see the same table that you guys do. I think I see something very different. Basically what I'm looking at is a color contrast of blue and white, and I like it. I like the way those things are contrasted. But I'm sure you all pick up different aspects of that table. Next, maybe the women like the way it's pleated and think, boy, that would be tough to dry clean. You gotta pay for every pleat. So I don't believe that any of us, when looking at the exact same thing, see the exact same thing. I think we see it completely different as we process it through our biases, our history, our prejudices, our tastes. So I won't say his coming in here is wrong or that he shouldn't do it. I just like to. This kind of pertains to the scientific method. I didn't, we didn't go over that signal. That's not fair. Okay, that's 15. Oh boy. Okay, let's see here. Something, something that kind of conveys the relativistic or existential idea is this. I'm going to talk to you about a very famous leader, I'm sure one that you're all familiar with. This leader believed that his country and people should occupy all territory between the Atlantic and Pacific. He started a war to obtain his goal and systematically murdered an extremely large number of persons all belonging to a minority group. To soften the guilt of these people's annihilation, the propaganda of the time was that these people were savages, so therefore it's okay to annihilate them. If you think I'm talking about Adolf Hitler, no. I'm talking about James Polk, our country's 11th president, and other presidents that followed him. He achieved his goal, unlike Hitler. Spain was defeated, we got California, we got Texas, Texas we got Arizona, the indigenous people of this country are barely a shadow of their former statue. Chicago, Manhattan, these are Native American terms. Chicago means it smells like a bad onion. Really, it does. I heard that this morning. At least that's what the captain of the plane said. 
In the absence of a relativistic world, your wrong becomes, I view things differently. Consensus is not mistaken for truth. We can talk about things that we're confident about, you see, not things that are. I'm confident that there's this thing we might agree to call a round table in the center of this area. I'm confident that if I placed my water glass on that, it wouldn't hit the floor and crash, although it might be an hallucination. But I'm still confident about it. And we can talk about things without definitiveness and relate to our confidence about those things. And we can still get along with that. We don't need to be in conflict if we express ourselves through our confidence. I'm very confident my car will start on demand. My 1989 Honda was the car of the year. It's an excellent vehicle. A big part of helping persons with OCPD is helping them communicate in a way that doesn't off-put others around them. And the nicest tool available to facilitate that goal is something in cognitive behavior therapy called assertiveness. Fun communicates in a style which is off-putting and not assertive. One is not conscious of other people's worlds. And therefore, the likelihood of a favorable outcome is diminished. And to a pragmatist like myself, that's a nightmare. In business, the absence of effective communication costs the country billions of dollars every year. The Gulf War was started because our diplomats said to the Iraqi diplomat, your interest in Kuwait is an eternal matter. It's your country's business. And the Iraqi diplomat took that back to Saddam Hussein and said, America doesn't think it's their business. Let's go get Kuwait. Assertiveness is the expression of one's own experience and the circumstances related to it. So assertiveness fits beautifully into the idea of relativism. That guy makes me mad is not an assertive statement. Sir, your entrance into the room creates a problem for me is not an assertive statement. Because I'm giving him power in that idea. I'm not taking responsibility for my own experience. And unfortunately, one of the things that most people hate about cognitive principles is that we believe 100% we are responsible for our own experience. You can't make me angry. And speaking in front of you, it doesn't make me anxious. My anxiety comes from my own trepidation, my own behavior in doing something novel. I only give these presentations a few times a year. If I did it every day, it'd be a piece of cake. But the anxiety or the sadness, or the anger, they all come from within me. My girlfriend breaks up with me. 
I'm upset not because of what she did, but because of the beliefs I have about what she meant in my life. And your joke, it doesn't make me laugh. My particular brand of humor related to what you said in a way that I found funny, because not everyone would, particularly my brand of humor. So assertiveness, that's a tough thing. The ability to say, I'm seeing something in a particular way and I want to share my reaction with you. And it is my reaction. So maybe I'll model in a sort of response if he comes back in the next 10 minutes. I also advocate that people, when they feel offended or alienated, that they ask questions rather than react. When you called me a loser, did you mean for me to feel bad? Or were you aware that the term loser is something that I find offensive? The last point I'll make is the idea of dealing with criticism. A lot of people with OCPD are very reluctant to engage in a lot of diverse activities because they can't be sure of the outcome. They can't be sure that people won't notice they didn't get it right and they become crippled and frozen. If you said, Steve, I enjoyed your little talk, more eye contact and less ums would have really improved it. Well, what's a shrink to do with this kind of feedback? Feel inadequate or perhaps take the information into account, process the feedback through my own standards and decide whether or not I agree. So if you say, Steve, that tie and jacket just don't make it today. What were you thinking? I would say, you know, when I looked in the mirror, I said, I'm doing something risky here. There's going to be some people who are not going to agree that this tie jacket combination works today. So I agree that I took a risk. I like the way it looks. But I understand why you'd be concerned about that. And I questioned it this morning, too. So rather than being reactive, to be able to process it through your take on it at first, you know, to say, well, how do I see it? Before you decide that this person needs to be punished for the feedback. If someone said, you know, in the beginning when you said you were a jerk, you were right. You see, that's okay, because what I would say is, well, you perceive some of the things that I said in a way that you had a strong negative reaction to. And it's, it's common that when we hear people say things or put things in a way that we have a strong negative reaction to, we just say, now that is a jerk. So. I'm not really susceptible to embracing the idea of being a jerk because one, 
it's a ghost. I don't believe in jerks. And number two, it's okay that you see things differently. That's just the way of the world. We all see things differently. And if you think that I was wrong, that's okay too. I didn't expect today to change anyone's mind, but to just to maybe take a look at some ideas that we can all benefit from, but particularly people within this condition could really use a great deal of attention to. Because OCPD, it's extremely devastating. To people who have it, to people around them, it creates a lot of problems. It creates a lot of wars, creates a lot of religious intolerance. And when that person whose name escapes me, who was um, beaten by the Los Angeles police, Rodney King, I guess, got on the television and said, why can't we all just get along? It's because we don't give each other permission to see the world differently. We have to own our truths and punish those for having different truths. So that's all I have to say on that matter. So I'll take any questions if you have any. Lady in the back. It's probably more that having OCP creates some little OCDs more than OCD to have OCP. I would say that it's highly unlikely that someone with OCP wouldn't have little OCDs. And genetically speaking, I mean, you know, behaviors don't like to talk about OCP because it's too big. Behaviors like small things, like washing your hands, not washing your hands. Um, so, you know, I'm really uh, not happy with my, prof my profession's lack of attention to things like personality disorders. Freudians, of course I hate them all, um, Freudians pay a lot of attention to personality disorders. Behaviors tend not to, so I really don't know the research on genetics. But I do see trends in the family. It's just difficult to say when you've got a parent who rules the roost, you know, as a child, you can easily grow up with the same idea. So it's difficult to separate the, the genetic component out. I guess twin studies separated at birth, but I'm not sure of any. Yes? Yeah, I, uh, very, very much so. I like that question. You sound like a behaviorist. Oh, yes. He asked, within the specific uh, manifestations of OCP, is there a place for the, um, the ever-loving, God-sent behavioral treatment of exposure exercises? And, and very much so. I um, very much advocate that people, God forbid, put their shoes in their closet crooked, you know, and then experience their capacity to tolerate that the world isn't ordered in the way they need it to be. To, um, to not put the milk on the top shelf, you know, and, and to sort of develop a resilience behaviorally and experientially to the, to the idea that, uh, like, 
like uh, one, one of my favorite exercises was uh, if you buy 10 exact pens and then you start using them, you know, in your world, in different settings, in one month, if you have more than three of those pens, that would be a miracle, unless you have to put them back exactly the way they are. So I advocate that people would do something like that and discover, as I regularly do, that pens do disappear and that the world is out of my hands. Um, it's kind of similar to the genetic question. Uh, I'll just say that um, I don't believe that OCD is the result of a chemical imbalance as much as I believe that everything in our life is a result of a chemical imbalance. I believe that OCPD is a dispositional disorder, a philosophical disorder, predominantly acquired through learning and possibly acquired as a result of mismanaged trauma, as I mentioned. Yes? By the way, your hair is too neat. Okay. In regard to with OCPD rituals or, or activity being productive versus OCD it being non-productive, um, any excess to me is not productive. You know, OCD, I'm washing my hands to get rid of AIDS. I don't believe that there were AIDS there in the first place, so that's pretty unproductive. OCPD, I'm sanding, uh, you know, my uh, new bookcase for eight hours because I don't want to be able to feel anything but glass. I wouldn't call that productive. It might seem like I'm coming to a reasonable goal, but I don't believe it to be so. Someone in the back there? Wow, I need you for my research. There are certain things within OCD that I could predict probably within 80%, and that's what the research preliminary findings are, are kind of showing, that probably of all persons with a really good case of hoarding probably qualify for OCPD, but if I got, we're just sort of starting it out, you know, maybe have about 40 subjects, maybe with 110, uh, we could prove that wrong and see it to just be a small part of OCPD. So I certainly built for that challenge. Yes? Hey, um, 
Uh-huh. Can you speak louder? the undoing of uh, the, the sort of leverage to undo some OCPD tendencies. Is there a question? Right, it would be inconsistent because o pragmatism is not within OCPD, it's, it's used to leverage out OCPD. That was part of the therapeutic uh, um, implementation. Yes? Hold, hold a second, ma'am. Could, could you speak? No, no, you. I'm sorry. Oh, God, I hate those initials. Um, you know, I, I, I know nothing really, really, really about ADD and ADHD. I just know that I'm hearing it all the time and it's, it's very dis distressing. Um, I hate fad diagnoses and every adult now is taking Ritalin, you know. Okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I really know nothing about, I know nothing really about ADD other than my mother said that that's what I was as a child. Um, I am actually dyslexic, uh, so that's why you saw a lot of stuttering and hesitation there. I can barely read my own writing. But um, I, I really don't know anything about ADD other than having lived it. You know, the medication that I might recommend for someone with OCPD um, are, are, are not different from any of the ones that generally recommended for OCD. Uh, I think that all it does, it, it, can, it can take away some of the intensity that compels people to live within those rigid systems. It doesn't cure the, excuse me, the disorder because the disorder isn't an anxiety disorder. Excuse me, so antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications would tend not to, um, you know, have an effect on a belief disorder rather than an anxiety disorder. But I, I um, have seen like Zoloft, um, you know, have very, very positive effects in, in helping some people open up to the therapy of changing their basic belief tenets. Sertraline, um, oh, I hate those generic names. It might be. I really can't do those names. Yes? 
Right. I'm, I'm not sure if you read my article, but I might recommend that you take a look at the article, The Right Stuff. I addressed that issue. Basically, um, I can't think of any clients that have come in to see me saying, hey, doc, they call me Steve, I got OCPD, hey, could you help me? Uh, they're, they're coming in for depression, they're coming in for an OCD diagnosis that they didn't understand, they also had OCP, or their spouse said, get help or get out. Uh, but, you know, maybe after the article, you know, some people have called me related to that diagnosis. I work with OCPD persons with the idea that there's a bullet with my name on it. And I never know when it's going to hit, and it could hit at any time. And when it hits, the hair on the back of my neck goes up, and I become sort of frightened for the world that I'm now experiencing within them, because it's so intense. Um, and, then, and then the work begins, or they walk out of the office. you know. Anyway, I'm about to get yelled at. Steve. Thank you. Uh, I have 